You are now listening to the November 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, everyone. My name is Joseph McDonald, the host of a weekly program where we share our thoughts about a big topic. It is something that we as Christians must do, yet we often find it difficult to do so. This is Forgiveness. We have been thinking about forgiveness these past few weeks. Have you had time to consider how forgiveness applies to your life in terms of how God has treated you and how you should treat others? Have you realized God's grace of forgiveness? Fundamentally, we have to understand God's grace before we can forgive others. This is because only those that understand the grace of forgiveness can extend that same grace of forgiveness to others. It seems forgiving others does not come naturally to us. We tend to refuse forgiving others unless there is some sort of condition attached. We tend to think, if someone wants me to forgive him for whatever he has done to me, that person has to make things right, and then I might consider forgiving him or her. In other words, we don't want to forgive other people unconditionally. The other person has to be willing to make things right. Confessing the wrong he or she has done and asking for forgiveness would be a good place to start. Kneeling and begging would also help. When we think this way, what is going through our minds? At the center of this type of thinking, what we have is a desire for justice. We might call it revenge. To make things right, that person has to feel the hurt that I myself have felt. Perhaps this is human nature. How does this observation apply to you? Do you have someone that you find it difficult to forgive? Are there things you want that person to do to receive your forgiveness? Is forgiving that person a possibility? Could you forgive that person if he got down on his knees with tears and begged? If you were to forgive him, would you expect him to take the position of servitude around you? If you thought that way, you would not be alone. That is our nature. However, if we as Christians conform to this type of natural human inclination, what's the difference between us and non-believers? We have been called by God for a greater purpose. How can we call ourselves Christians if we live the same way as those who do not know God? If we are Christians, we have to obey God's word and follow the example of Jesus. We have to overcome our human nature to follow Jesus. The following is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. 
While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The Bible tells us clearly how we have to live our lives. God wants us to follow the steps of Christ. This is the reason God called us. Then, what are these steps of Christ? It begins with Jesus suffering for us. The righteous one suffered for us, the sinners. Christ was insulted even though he did not commit any sin. Therefore, he had the right to return insults back to the people insulting him. However, Christ put down his right. He did not get back at those that insulted him. He suffered at the hands of his people, but he willingly gave up his right of returning the suffering back at them. He did none of those things that we listed earlier as part of our human natural inclination. He did not ask God to make things even by asking something like, Father, never forget what they have done to me. Never forgive their offenses. Please do what is just by taking revenge on them. Instead, Christ defended the people that persecuted him. He asked God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Why do you think Jesus asked God to forgive his accusers, those that ended up killing him on the cross? Did Jesus ask God to forgive them because they had repented of their sins? Did they admit their offenses and beg for forgiveness? No, they did not. Rather than admitting their offenses, they continued to make fun of Jesus. Jesus forgave them regardless, whether they repented of their sins or not. This observation brings us to the central point of today's message. Being forgiven by Jesus did not automatically equate to being redeemed. In other words, all the people that crucified Christ on the cross Those who were involved in killing Jesus were not redeemed. They did not attain redemption even after Jesus forgave them. Jesus did not take revenge on them. Jesus did not ask them to pay for their offenses. Jesus merely put down his right to even things up, asking God to forgive them. God would judge them righteously. Let's read the last part of 1 Peter 2.23 carefully. Jesus did not deal with them directly, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. This is very important. Jesus forgave them. However, that did not translate to their sins being forgiven. They still had to settle their sins before God. Had they realized and repented of their sins, God would have forgiven their sins and redeemed them. However, if they did not admit or repent of their sins, God would judge them accordingly. This message comes through unequivocally through the Bible. Why do you think that this is important? One of the reasons we can't forgive those that have offended us often is because we think our forgiveness might eradicate their offenses. It's hard for us to erase the offenses as if it did not happen. The offense was evil and we suffered a lot. We might tend to think our forgiveness would make that evil thing that was done to us as if it did not happen in the first place. However, what the Bible teaches us is that the person who committed the offense still needs to settle that with God. 
Even though I forgive that person, he still has to be held accountable for his offenses before God. We just need to put down our rights before God. The person will still have to deal with God for his sins. Jesus knew God and trusted that God would judge righteously. So we also should trust God and leave the judgment to God. If that person repents of his sins before God, God will forgive him just as God has forgiven us. If that person does not repent of their sins, God will render righteous judgment against him. In this sense, forgiveness might be easier than we initially thought. Even though I forgive someone, their sins are not going to disappear. Therefore, we ought to forgive others and follow the example of Jesus and how he forgave others. We should trust God for his righteous judgment, just as Jesus did. Forgiveness. It is a difficult yet simple concept. We will continue talking about forgiveness next week. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Meitler of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Clearing the Confusion. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. I want to do a quick review because we're still early in the sermon series. Here's where we've been. First week, we looked at this. The worst kind of news is fake spiritual news. A lot of us in this day and age tend to get focused on political stuff. And um, there's a place for that. But what I'm concerned about, and what I'm burdened about for the church is that we stay focused on the spiritual aspect of these things. Because that's where the true fight is, right? Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. Then week number two, we looked at this. We looked at the woke movement, and that is really the movement that is swept our country and swept around the world. The woke movement is far more than a political movement. It is a religious spiritual movement. And so we want to never lose sight of that. So in the first message, the one on the worst kind of news is fake spiritual news. I pointed out just what was at stake in Genesis chapters one through three. How incredibly important these chapters are. Um, how much is at stake in Genesis chapters one through three? There's an absolutely overwhelming amount of unbelievably critical doctrine grounded in those three chapters. If we give up those three chapters, we give up a ton, and I mean a ton. And while Christians may not always appreciate this, there's been times where I haven't appreciated just how much is in Genesis. I will tell you this, the secular humanists, they have not lost sight of what is at stake in Genesis 1 through 3. See, the secular humanists in this society want to write a new chapter. They want to send us in a new direction culturally, and they want it to go around the world. They want to create a new world with a new direction, a new morality. And so they understand that in order to do that, they have to change the narrative that has existed. And the narrative that has existed is that there is a God that created all things seen and unseen, right? He created male and female. He created all things. And this is the story that comes out of Genesis chapters one through three. So we don't want to give up the fight, but somewhere along the line, we did. Somewhere along the line, the Christian community just threw in the towel and said, you know what? Let's not fight for that. Let's just go somewhere else. Let's talk about Jesus. And I believe we did this all the while thinking this, what's the big deal? We said, let's just give up the fight. And we thought, what's the big deal? What can be the harm? Well, the harm was this. The door was left wide open for secular humanists to question everything in Genesis 1 through 3. The existence of God, the creation of the world, the existence of miracles, and the list goes on and on and on. They were also able to call into question the topic that is before us today. And it is a sensitive topic. It is a hot button topic. So brace yourselves. Are you ready? Because the topic that we are talking about today is gender. Gender. Now, a word of caution before we move forward. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. But I want to say this. This message, I want to strengthen your conviction in the biblical understanding of the genders. But conviction without compassion is no good, is it? Conviction without compassion is no good. And so 
on any subject as Christians, we want to always proceed with gentleness and respect, right? First Peter 3.15, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So again, that's what I wanted to, the groundwork I want to lay here, because as we get into this, I don't want you, you're, you're, you're going to, I'm going to say things and you're going to go, yeah, right? But I don't want you to go, yeah, let's smash them. I want you to go, yeah, let's love, let's love them. So that's where I want to, I want to lay this. this is a very sensitive issue. And by the way, this is affecting real people with real lives. And many of us probably know people that are struggling with this. And that's why I say it's a sensitive issue. And we as Christians want to be very careful as we proceed. So we live in a day and age where gender has changed. It's changed a lot. There are now upwards of 110 to 115 genders with which a person can now identify. And again, I don't say that to judge. Conviction with compassion is no good. We want to couple those together. Now, there is no doubt that that number is going to continue to rise. I have no doubt that five years from now that that number will be way up. It'll keep going up. And the reason that there are so many genders with which a person can identify is because of the fake news that has swept our planet, not just our country, not just our culture. It has swept the world. And the fake news goes something like this. Gender is a social construct. Gender is a social construct. Construct. This is the news. This is the headlines. I mean, it is everywhere. It is on every possible news outlet. It is on every possible, you name it, it is there. It's everywhere. Now, if you don't know what that means, gender is a social construct, it's very simple. It means this. Gender is nothing more than what society defines it to be. Society, not God, defines gender. And that's huge. That has massive ramifications. Because whoever is defining terms is an authority, right? Either God is the one defining terms or man is. And when man defines terms, we're in trouble. Whether that be me or anyone else. That's why I say, people come to me and they go, da, da, da. I go, you don't want my opinion. You want the Bible. You do not want Bill's opinion. You want the Bible. Here's the deal. As a result of this news spreading far and wide, gender has now become what is known as fluid, gender fluid. It, you know, it's funny, it's the first two services, a little bit older congregation, I really had to explain things. I think you guys get most of this stuff, but you're under, if you're not familiar with the term gender fluid, it simply means gender is something that is ever-changing, developing, and evolving in people. It's like water, it can go where it wants, and it should go where it wants, according to this narrative, according to this new headline. Um, just last week, somebody quite famous here in the United States, I'm not going to mention their name, a, a prominent social influencer said this, this was a direct quote, I definitely always dreamed of a world in which nobody will have to come out because everybody's sexuality will be assumed fluid. Now, I'm a little older than some of you in here, but those of you that are older in my generation will know this. When we grew up, what was assumed about gender? Yeah, it was assumed that it was fixed. You were either male or female. The, but that's the point. When you trust, when God's word is defined, gets to define things and there's male and female gender, it has been the case in human society that gender has been assumed fixed, but the narrative is changing. It's a new headline that's being written. And the new headline is it's no longer fixed. It should be fluid. As a matter of fact, it should have never been fixed. It should always be fluid. And it should, you should never have to come out that it's fluid. It should just be assumed. This is what's at stake, folks. 
A new narrative is being written. New news headlines are sweeping the globe, and this is one of them, and it is powerful. What's the result? The results are amazing. I shouldn't say that. That's not the right word. They're incredible. Here's what we're doing. Here's, here's the result of it. We are allowing children to make life-altering decisions related to the issues of cross-dressing, hormone replacement, and surgery for permanent gender reassignment. And I don't say that to condemn. Please hear my heart. Conviction without compassion is no good. But when I was growing up, and many of you in here when you were growing up, and some of you are still growing up, I couldn't cross the street without my parents' permission, right? But somehow we've moved to a day and age where we're letting children make decisions on this level. This is where we are. And again, I don't say that to, conv- uh, to, to judge, but just to, to, to show you what happens when God's word is departed from. We're also doing a lot of other things. Let me give you some more examples of what happens when you depart from God's word. And I don't say this, again, understand compassion. When I mention the things I'm about to mention, you're going to go, yeah, but I want you to go, yeah, compassion, not yeah, let's smash it. Fair enough? When Bruce Jenner came out as a woman, he was immediately crowned as woman of the year by Glamour magazine. That would have never happened in previous generations. In the state of Connecticut, this is just one example, a high school sophomore who was born a male but identifies as a female, bless his heart, set new state records in the 100-meter and 200-yard dash, crushing the competition made up of biological females. And yet, this is now being approved. And it's being approved not just in local sports, it's going to be in the Olympics. Gavin Hubbard, a man who identifies as a woman, will be representing New Zealand in weightlifting at the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. Compassion. Compassion, because these are real people, you guys, that are struggling with real issues. There's no condemnation here in the sense that let's put them down. It's, I want you to know the truth. We want you to know the truth. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, It was reported uh, just this past week, a 28-year-old man who won the Miss Nevada contest will be competing for the 2021 Miss America crown. I said this in a previous message. I want to say it again. Those that are pushing forever progressive thinking, those that are pushing forever progressive Christianity, there is no bounds. They will not stop. It won't stop. So as much as we might go, well, we'll try and meet you halfway. There is no meeting halfway because just as soon as you move this way, they're going to keep moving. And I'll give you another example. It's not just transgender anymore. This past week, the world was shocked to hear about a British man who is now coming out as trans Korean. I don't know if you saw that in the news. So not only is the issue of transgender on the table, it is now transracial that is on the table. And again, this is just the gravity of what we're dealing with. This is where our culture is. And this is what happens when you abandon a biblical worldview. So on that note, here's what I want to do. I'm going to, here's what's going to happen today. I'm going to take us to two passages in Genesis, significant passages. Then I want to look at the best argument being used by the other side. And then I want to take us back to those passages in Genesis and walk them through us. Walk, walk through and show why we as believers can stand strong on the Bible. Fair enough? So here we go, church. It's my honor to take us to the word of God today. First passage will be in Genesis chapter 1, beginning verse 26. Again, hear the word of God this morning. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want to jump over to chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and then we'll do 21 through 23. It's all right here. But then the Lord God said, 
It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Again, amen, church. I present to you the word today. There you have it. The beauty and simplicity of God's word. The one true God creating two different genders, completely distinct yet complementary in every way. This is God's plan. And it's a simple plan. It's a great plan. And it produces such good fruit. Do you know what sin does? Sin creates confusion. And that's exactly a perfect example on this issue is there's confusion in the world because what God has made simple, Satan has brought in new news that has brought nothing but confusion. Now, let's talk about the argument that's being used against the biblical worldview. It's important. I want to represent it fairly, and I want you to know it well. And it goes something like this. The argument is that a person's sex, that's biological, and a person's gender is psychological. Okay, that's the crux of it. We might say psychological or social. In other words, the body you were born with, okay, that's your sex. It's, it's my physical traits. That is biological. My gender, on the other hand, is psychological. This is the parts that I was born with. This is what my heart desires. Does that make sense? What's being done here, it's again, it's a very significant thing that's happening here because what we're being told is one's sex and one's gender are two distinct things. Now, is that true? That's, that's an important question because how we answer that question is going to have a bearing on this topic in a huge way. But back to the point, you can be, for example, born physically a male, but psychologically you can think you're a female or something else. The result is there doesn't need to be any fixed gender categories. Gender should be fluid. This is the result of that. And this is where, by the way, this word comes in. Many of you are familiar with it, but if you're not transitioning, and again, I, I say this with the greatest of compassion and compared. No condemnation here. I want to be gentle and, and kind here. What transitioning simply means is transitioning is where my physical characteristics, I'm going to bring them into line with my psychological desires or my heart's desires. So I'm going to transition my body to meet what my chosen gender is. Does that make sense? So this is where transitioning comes in. Now, because this isn't a science class, this isn't an anatomy class, although it kind of sounds like one, I'm not going to bother to introduce the overwhelming scientific data supporting the reality that there's only two genders. But just so you know, science is on our side. Surprise, surprise. Okay. Um, not only that, the science is on our side that one's sex and one's gender are intrinsically united together. I'm not going to get into that debate because there are plenty, you, there's so many articles you can read, there's so much science you can look at, and there's people that are more qualified than me. What I want to do is take us back to the passages we just read and show you that why, I want to show you why as a Christian you can't stand strong on God's word on this issue, okay? So the most important place to start is this, nowhere in God's word is a person's sex ever separated from their gender. Period, end of sentence. It's not. It's not separated in God's word. It hasn't been separated in history, and I would argue that you can't separate it scientifically. But today, we focus on God's word. As a matter of fact, in God's word, it is just the opposite. The Bible seems to go out of its way 
to show that a person's sex and gender are one in the same. In other words, if you are a male, you are a man. If you are a female, you are a woman. So let me show you. Genesis chapter 127, 26, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he created them male and female. We'll, we'll refer to that as their biological sex. They are male and female. They have all the parts that go with that title. Fair enough? But if we go to Genesis chapter 2, it's the exact, God simply is telling about creating Adam and Eve. He does it again. So in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God created man in his own image. In Genesis chapter 2, he tells the exact same thing, but gives us more detail. And in Genesis chapter 2, we learn this. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So again, if you go back, Genesis chapter 1, they're called male and female. Genesis chapter 2, they're called man and woman, and they're one and the same. Does that make sense? It's the same creation account. There's, it's not two different accounts. It's the same creation account. God says, I'm going to make man and woman, pardon me, male and female, and they're called man and woman. So one's gender and one's biological sex, you, if you will, are one and the same in Scripture. Not only that, if we take it a step further, not only in Genesis chapter 1 are they called male, female. In Genesis chapter 2, they're called man, woman. In Genesis chapter 3, they're referred to as he, him, and she, her. So let me give you an example. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. So that's all referring back to the woman. Now we're introduced to the husband who was with her and he ate it. The point is very simple. Male, female, man, woman, he, his, she, her are all one and the same in Genesis 1 through 3. I'm only in Genesis, by the way. I'm only sticking to Genesis 1 through 3. And the evidence there is overwhelming that you can't separate these things. Your gender and your biology go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. That's what the Bible says in just the first three chapters of Genesis. The science supports it. History supports it. And yet the narrative that is being pushed today is completely opposite. There's a lot at stake here, guys. There's a lot at stake. You know what else is so interesting about Genesis 1 through 3? Adam and Eve sin, of course, in these chapters. And as they sin, God curses. He brings curses upon creation. You know what's so interesting? Adam and Eve would now bear the marks of their fallenness in gender-specific ways. In other words, when God brings curses, he brings curses that are gender-specific. Crazy. I wonder why. So let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 3, and to Adam, he said, so this is just for Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Interesting. Adam's work of providing for his family and working the ground was cursed. What about Eve? She also receives curses in gender-specific ways. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then it also says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Ladies, do you want to know why marriage is hard? Men, do you want to know why marriage is so hard? This is why. (laughs) This is why. And I, I can't get into this, but the point is, Eve was to be Adam's helper, but something happened where she was now going to try to dominate him and rule over him, and he was going to rule over her. And guess what happens when you have two people trying to rule over each other? Exactly. You get where we are today. And by the way, those of you that aren't married and you're going, no, I won't, I won't ever, I'll always get along with my spouse. Talk to anyone who's married in here. <laughs> right. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Marriage is a gift from God, and it is a wonderful thing, but it is hard at times. By the way, this is just the biblical evidence from Genesis 1 through 3. The evidence that God created two distinct but complementary genders with gender-specific roles. By the way, you don't ever... The thing that society wants you to do, society wants to blur the line between men and women. And yet the Bible has two distinct yet complementary. This is called complementarianism, by the way. It's a theological term. Complementarianism is that men and women are distinct, but they complement each other. And we should rejoice in our distinctive characteristics because together we're better. Amen? Amen. Together we're better. But what, what uh, the what modern woke movement wants to do is relate, remove all the lines, blur all the lines so that there's no distinction. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible is full of distinction in this regard. Let me give you one example from the New Testament. The passage I'm about to read to you is perhaps one of the most offensive passages to those in the woke movement. So are you ready? Brace yourselves. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, brace yourselves, this is going to sting, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in, ladies, say it with, say that one word with me. Tough word to say, isn't it? (laughs) In everything to their husbands. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I say that because the guys that are doing the, the live streaming need me to They want me to finish the whole passage and not stop halfway in between, but I can't help myself, so sorry. This is absolutely offensive. If you hold to this, you are going to be considered a misogynist in this generation. A misogynist is a man, is somebody who oppresses women, has oppressive views towards women, and treats women in in a bigoted, hurtful way. Yet that's the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Women, wives, submit to your husbands, not just in some things, but in all things. Now, if you think that's offensive, look at what the men are called to. If you think that's hard, I would argue what the men are called to do in this passage is far greater than what even the women are called to do in this passage. Look what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Men, your wives are called to submit to you. You are called to what? Lay down your lives for them. You are to love your wife to the point that you would die for her. The last breath in your lungs you will give to her if it means that she lives. Women are to submit. Men are to die. If only this was being taught, right? If only this were being taught. 
The marriages across this globe would be transformed. Women submit in everything. Men, die for your wives. Live every second of your life ready to lay down your life for the love of your life that God gave to you as a gift. Sadly, this is a one example. This is so offensive to the woke movement. They're going to go, it's the most misogynist, hate-filled, oppressive passage in the New Testament, perhaps. Western culture, sadly, which owes much of its success. And by the way, when I say Western culture, I don't mean you just the United States. By Western culture, you understand that I'm going all the way back to, um, I'm going all the way back to the Middle Ages and, you know, when Europe started to develop and come into its own. Western culture, and really all culture, but Western culture in particular, owes much of its success to the godly influence of Judeo-Christian ethics that have been passed down from generation to generation including in this area. Western culture, which owes much of its success to the Judeo-Christian ethic, is now leading the charge in its rebellion to the clear teaching of scriptures, specifically with regard to the male and female gender. Guys, it will come with consequences. Remember the things I mentioned earlier in my sermon? I talked about that we have a man who is now woman of the year and a man who's going to be competing in weightlifting. Again, conviction with compassion. I'm not trying to, I don't want to cast stones. That is the first fruit of what you're going to see coming. You understand? You, you, I said some of those things, and you're like, wow, I can't believe that that's where we are. That's just the first fruits. This movement, this new narrative that gender is a social construct, it should be fluid. Nothing should be assumed, which is everything I just said, rolled out of my mouth was unbiblical. But that's the narrative that's being pressed. If you think where we are now... You know, if you're like, wow, look at where we are. That's the first fruits. This movement has not hit its full stride yet, and we have not seen the full development of where it's going to go. That might not happen for 50 years. Many of us won't even be here, perhaps, when this fully comes to fruition. The question is, can it be turned around? The answer is yes. But here's what's going to shock you, and this is the point of what I'm saying. Listen to me very carefully, guys. It will... If you want to turn this around, most of us think, well, we, how do we turn this around? Let's pass better laws. Let's do better education. The answer is not necessarily political. It is not educational. It is what? Spiritual. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. You guys, this is a spiritual issue. All of these issues are spiritual issues at their core. If we in this room don't understand this, the battle is over. But our God is an awesome God, is he not? He is an awesome God and our gospel is amazing. Our gospel sets people free. And you know how I know that? Because it set me free. Amen. And that's why I don't cast any stones. Because, But for the grace of God, I would be dead by now. But here we all are in this room by the grace of God. Now let's take that grace and proclaim it to the world Amen. and set people free. Yes. The thing is, guys, the people that are in this movement, they're being told there's freedom over there. Explore your gender because there's freedom. But you and I know there's going to be nothing but confusion, doubt, and uncertainty. And incidentally, I'm reading more and more evidence and more and more articles of people that have transitioned over here and want to come back because they're getting over here and going, you know what? Something's wrong. And what's wrong is you're fighting against what God has established. Come home. You know what happens when you come home? You're welcome home. God's going to be, what does Jesus say? All that come to me, I will not, I, anyone that comes to me, I will not cast them away. Come back to the truth. Come back to God's word. Come home. 
It's good at home. Now, here's what I want to do with the time that we have left very briefly. Ladies, there's fake news that is being told to you. I want to address that. And then I want to shift and I'm going to talk to the men in here because there's fake news that's being told to you. And I want to address just one issue. So here we go. Ladies, you ready? The fake news that I think specifically is being told to women in this day and age goes something like this. This is my best encapsulation of it. So if it's not perfect, forgive me, but it goes something like this. A woman cannot be all that she is supposed to be unless she can do all that a man is supposed to do. We're telling, and you may not really feel the pressure of that because most of us in here are older, but the younger generation, and by the way, this new narrative is being pushed not only in universities, high schools, middle schools, all the way down to elementary, big time. So we're raising a generation of young girls and being told, you should be everything a man should be. Otherwise, you're not worth much. If you aren't like a man in every way, you aren't worth much. Folks, that's the last thing we want to be telling them. We want to be telling them that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You were knitted together in, the, in your womb by the hand of God. Everything about you is special and unique and beautiful. Embrace it. As a result, what's happening? We are raising a generation of young girls who are told you should be discontent and dissatisfied with who you were born to be. Sadly, my fear is that a generation of young gals, young women are going to grow up having missed out on all that God has for them because they're pursuing what man is telling them they should have. Listen, why a woman would ever want to be like a man is beyond me in the first place. Ladies, if you haven't figured it out, men are primitive and disgusting. <laughs> Do I hear an amen? amen? We are. We are primitive and disgusting. You don't want to be like us. Trust me when I tell you that. By the way, you want a great example of a woman who embraces biblical womanhood? It's called Proverbs 31. Go home and read Proverbs 31. Every man and every woman in here, if you want to know what a woman who embraces biblical womanhood looks like, read Proverbs 31. And by the way, you're going to be blown away when you read Proverbs 31. You want to know why? The woman in that chapter, she's amazing. She loves God. She loves her family. She embraces her role as wife and mother, yet she's got a business. And many other things she is doing. She's an incredible woman. And you know what happens when a woman embraces biblical womanhood? People praise her. You know how I know that? Her children rise and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Many women have done excellently. There's, there's excellent women everywhere. But the woman who embraces biblical womanhood stands out above the rest. You surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. Women that are good at that are everywhere. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who trusts God and embraces all that God has made her to be, she's praised. And she surpasses all other women. Listen, ladies, everyone in here, and, and you need to tell this to your children and grandchildren. The society is going to say that you cannot be all that you should be unless you can do all that a man should do. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to receive praise from people, be all that God has called you to be. Be content. Two genders, completely distinct, but complementary in every way. This is complementarianism. The fake news that is being told to men, I mentioned it last week, is simply this. You're toxic. You're primitive, disgusting, and toxic. I love the word primitive and disgusting. Aren't they great words? 
But essentially it's this, you need to learn to be more feminine so that you won't be so offensive. And sadly, this news has become so loud that we have an entire generation of men apologizing for acting like men. I wanted to know what toxic, what they considered toxic. So I went and did some research. You don't want to know what toxic is? Toxic is this. If you're a man and you um, do any risk-taking, you're toxic. If you show mental or physical toughness, you're toxic. If you show independence, leadership, or assertiveness, you're toxic. If you don't help out around the house or aren't sensitive enough, you are toxic. You do realize the irony of this, don't you? The irony of this is that we are feminizing our boys and masculinizing our girls. That's what we're doing. And I'm telling you, you go, so what? Well, look at the first fruits of the so what. We have men running in beauty passions, men competing in women's sports. We have confusion across the land. That's the first fruits of what you're going to see. Men, do you know what this country needs? You know what your family needs? You know what the church needs? It needs this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. See, you're going to be told to do just that. By the way, do you want to know what it means to act like a man? It's right there in the passage. A man is watchful. He stands on the wall and protects his family, protects his church, protects everything that, has, that he has authority over. And not, I'm not talking, many of you are thinking, well, politically, right? No, he's spiritually on the wall. He's on the wall. He's watchful, looking for deceit, looking for how the enemy is going to bring fake news into his family, into his community, into his church. He is on the wall. And he stands firm in his faith. He trusts God even when everyone else isn't. He stands firm in his faith. When other men are buckling left and right, the man who acts like a man, the man of God who acts like a man stands firm. He trusts God even when he's assaulted and ridiculed. He stands firm. He's strong in the things of God. He's strong in his understanding of scripture. He's strong in his leadership in the home and in his community. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to finish with a verse. I want you to take this verse home. Do you want to know what needs to be shouted, both men and women in this room? You know what needs to be shouted from the rooftops? Do you want to know what will change culture, this culture? I asked you earlier, can this issue be turned around? It can. But if your hope is in politics or in education, I'm not saying that there's, there's not work to be done there. The answer is spiritual. Here's what needs to be shouted from the rooftops. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Remember how I said conviction without compassion is no good? What I love about this passage, that verse right there, it's talking about a mother's womb. It's talking about knitting together. It's a gentle passage, yet loaded with significance. What we need to tell the younger generation isn't that you are the result of an accident and random mutations over millions of years. Good luck in figuring things out. What we need to tell people, and especially the younger generation, is God created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Fearfully and wonderfully made are you. You're a miracle. By the way, even ask non-Christians, when a baby is born, I've heard it. Non-Christians will say what? It's a miracle. Birth is a miracle. It's almost like they can't stop themselves from saying it. Why? Because it is Each child that comes out is a piece of artwork, a -a one-of-a-kind piece of artwork. And we need to tell them everything that you are has been given to you by God for a purpose. Embrace it. Embrace it. That's 
what's going to change this culture, guys, is when we tell people that there's a God that created you. He loves you. Everything about you, he put together. He did it in the womb. You had no clue what was going on, and he had every clue with what was going on. We preach that message and let the Holy Spirit and the Word of God do its work. Folks, things will change. So I finished with this. Here's the question. Here's the challenge. Here's what I want you to do this week. Here's what I'm going to try to do this week. Seek to be kind. Be compassionate. Conviction without compassion is no good. Seek to be kind yet unapologetic. You're going to be assaulted for holding to two genders. Be ready. Seek to be kind yet unapologetic as you stand firm on God's word regarding male and female genders. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we leave here today, I pray, God, that you'd give us courage and compassion as we shine your light in this world today. And God, we, um, we all have people that are struggling. And God, I pray that we would be there to speak truth. God, that we would be gentle and kind, but yet bold and unapologetic. Give us wisdom in those moments to know what to say, how to say it. And God, um, we pray, we pray, God, that this narrative um, that is being preached in the world today would turn around. And God, we pray that it would um, turn around quickly. So we lift it to you, God. We pray over this. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time from The God of Abraham, we looked into Genesis chapter 22 which recorded the highlight of Abraham's life of giving Isaac as a burnt offering. Through this, we reflected on the word worship. The Hebrew word shaka was first translated as worship here. We looked at Abraham's situation and reflected upon what worship is. Today, we'll continue to look at Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and his son arrived at the place God directed him to. In verses 9 and 10, we see him starting to do what God commanded. It's amazing how Isaac didn't defy his father who was tying him up. Isaac had firm faith towards his father. Since his father Abraham was trustworthy, Isaac had faith. This applies to Abraham's faith towards God, and this also applies to us as well. Through Abraham's faith, he is about to give his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Not only does this require Abraham's faith, but this was done because God, who commanded this, was trustworthy. As the Bible often mentions, God is faithful. Through decades of experience, Abraham knew God was trustworthy, 
so he believed and followed him. In the same way, we believe God and Jesus, but not because our faith is great. We believe because God led us to believe. Faith is a blessing. We cannot believe on our own. Therefore, it confirms that we are not led to salvation by our own righteousness. At times, we may think, aren't we led to salvation because we believe? Therefore, didn't I play some small role in being saved? However, that is arrogance. We did not decide on our own to believe God. We believe because He showed us that He is trustworthy. As I mentioned last time, it doesn't seem like Abraham was crying while being forced to do something he didn't want while he raised his knife upon his son. This is something we might imagine with our lack of faith. We don't know how Abraham looked or his emotions as he held the knife. His emotions, expressions, or actions are not described in any detail. However, by looking at Abraham's state of faith, I personally don't think he did it out of coercion. Abraham was not just going through the motion of giving his only beloved son as a burnt offering. Abraham raised his knife to actually give his son as a burnt offering. It's a very tense situation. What happened at that moment? Let's look into the Bible. Here's verse 11 through 14. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day, it is said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. There seems to be a sense of urgency, as the angel of the Lord called Abraham's name twice. Then he said, Now I know that you fear God. What does this mean? God knows everything, but why did he say, Now I know that you fear God? There is an important principle of faith contained here. There is nothing God doesn't know. God knew Abraham's faith. However, this time, he knew through the actual incident and Abraham's action. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and through his faith he was called righteous. However, James chapter 2 verse 21 says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So, if we combine these two, it means we are called righteous through our faith and our actions prove that righteousness. Here is James chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 
Abraham's faith was made complete by his action, and the scripture was fulfilled because Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If one has faith, then action will surely follow. This is not saying salvation is gained through action. You must not misunderstand this. Abraham's faith was followed by action, and so the angel of the Lord said, Now I know that you fear God. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horn. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Let's not quickly pass over this scene, but think for a moment. Most of us may think, now the ram is here. It's all done. Isaac doesn't have to be killed. The Bible says he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. As we mentioned previously, there is a process in giving a burnt offering. The ram's head is cut off. It's cut in the middle. The flesh between the bones is removed, and the internal organs are taken out and burned. This is what Abraham had to do. The ram was killed instead of Isaac. In the future, God would prepare his lamb who would die on behalf of all humanity. A burnt offering is not a sentimental thing. It is a very gruesome and realistic death. As Abraham was killing the ram, he was probably reminded of how he would have actually killed his son. God is showing us how he would actually give his son Jesus Christ over to death. I hope we could really remember this. Here is verse 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The angel of the Lord called Abraham for the second time. He reminded Abraham of all of God's promises. Then he swore by God's name to keep the promise. He was emphasizing that the promise won't be broken. Verse 19 says, Then Abraham returned to his servant, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. God originally promised to give Abraham a seed, and that seed came as Isaac. Then he just promised again that he will give many descendants through Isaac. After those verses, the Bible now records how God will do his work. Here is verse 20. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. After everything happened, Abraham heard this news. Before this, the news was not important. However, after Abraham's faith was proven by following God's word and giving Isaac as a burnt offering, God shows how he will keep his promise according to his plan. God is showing how Abraham's descendants will prosper through his seed Isaac. God has prepared a woman to become Isaac's wife. 
This is why the story of Rebecca's household suddenly appears, since Rebecca will be Isaac's wife. I'm sure some of you wondered why the story of the household of Nahor suddenly appeared. Now Abraham's time is nearing the end, and Isaac's time is coming. We can see that time is not centered on people, but on God's hand working through people. God's hand of salvation that worked on Abraham is now being moved to his son Isaac. God prepared Rebecca for his work. The new story of Isaac's wife Rebecca that will unfold is the period of transition from Abraham to Isaac. Today, we'll briefly look at the genealogy of Rebecca's household in Genesis chapter 22. It says Milka is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. Uz was the firstborn, and Uz's brother was Booz. Do you know who Uz and Booz are? The place where Uz lived was named Uz after him. It's also called the land of Uz. Do you remember the well-known person who lived in Uz? A well-known person named Job lived there. Job chapter 1 verse 1 starts by saying, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The second son was Booz. In the book of Job, there is a young wise person named Elihu, and his hometown was Booz. The Bible records the names Uz and Booz. Their descendants, Job and Elihu, lived in the northern region of Arabia. Most biblical scholars agree that Job is the first written book in the Bible. Of course, this story in Genesis happened before the story of Job, but if we look at the period it was written, the book of Genesis was written after the book of Job since Genesis was written by Moses. When the people living in Moses' time read Genesis, they would have already heard or read about the story of Job. They probably knew about Job's righteousness. They were probably proud that their mother and grandmother Rebecca belonged in the household of righteous Job. We'll end God of Abraham here. Next week, we'll look at the last story of Abraham. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. On the margin of the river, Washing up its silver spray, we will walk and worship ever all the happy golden day. Yes, we'll gather at the river, 
the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. Ere we reach the shining river, lay we every burden down. Grace our spirits will deliver and provide a robe and crown. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. Soon we'll reach the shining river, Soon our pilgrimage will cease. Soon our happy hearts will quiver with the melody of peace. Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.